For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me and the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Awesome. Thanks, Benger. Good morning, Flourishing Grace. How we doing? Good. I mean, that church center app, even, even there's, there's, there's so much more to it. I actually just submitted my prayer request in like two seconds on that thing. It's like so much easier than anything else. And you can check in your kid before you ever even get here, which is awesome too. When you're running late, you're just checking your kid on your way. It's like getting your Starbucks drink ordered in advance. It's pretty, pretty sweet. Um, so check that out. Download that. Use that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Josh Knight. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision. And so I mean, every week when I get up here, I mean, we're going to open the Word together. And we're going to be looking at that text from Malachi chapter 3. But it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time kind of setting up this whole idea of tithes and offerings. And where does that come from? And why, why do we talk about that? And um, I mean, if you are new at Flourishing Grace, we are in this short series, as Benger said, Generous Worship. We are talking about money, but more than that, we're talking about worship. And so if you are new, maybe you came on the arm of a friend, you're, you're a guest for the first time, maybe you've been coming for just a couple of weeks. Listen, uh, listen, there's no, we're not asking for a special offering or anything like that. We're not even asking for any money at all. Um, this is your opportunity to kind of sit back and, and kind of peer behind the scenes and say, Man, how does Flourishing Grace view money? How, how do they view resources? W- what does that look like here at Flourishing Grace? Um, and I think this is a really, really important question for us to discuss and to talk about. And I said it last week, man, Jesus talked about money all of the time. And when he talked about it, he said, man, it is, it's a mirror to our heart and our reflections. He said, man, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you want to know what you love more than you love anything in the world? And follow your money. See where it leads. Look at your bank account. And it's going to reveal to you kind of windows into your soul. Things that you don't even know about yourself can be found if you just study what you spend your money on. Um, And so I asked Benger. Benger's our executive pastor. He's one of the very few people on staff who has kind of access to all of our financial information. And I asked him a few weeks ago, I said, how are we doing like financially, like how are we as a church doing? Um, And I said this last week, and the reality is we're doing really, really, really well. Like, we have a projected budget for the year. Here's how much we're going to spend. And then we have projected giving because everything that we spend comes from uh, I mean, generous people in this room who give sacrificially to make that happen. And the, and the good news is I mean, we're doing great. 
Like our, our projected giving and our projected budget are, are right in line. Like we are, we're happy. Like we have money for all the ministry uh, this, this year and, and all the boring things like keeping the lights on and all that. We are set, right? We, we don't need more money. We just, we just don't. Um, in fact, we have money set aside in savings that if something were to happen to the economy, if something bad were to happen, like we have money, we're ready to go. Like we're not going to have to turn off the lights or fire staff or stop doing ministry in South Davis County. No, no, no. We will keep going um, because we've saved wisely for that. But the downside was this. Ben just said, I asked him, man, what percentage of people at Flourishing Grace are giving? And Ben just said, man, 40% of us. 40% of us aren't giving anything at all. 40% of people who attend Flourishing Grace give nothing at all. And of the 60% who are giving, less than half are giving in a way that would indicate men, thoughtful worship. Like they're actually worshiping with their money. What most of us do is we kind of give every now and then to kind of support a need or uh, maybe we feel convicted and so we throw in a few bucks, but very few of us are actually worshiping with our money. And less than 10% of people at Flourishing Grace, according to Binger's math, it's kind of, you can ask him later how he arrived at this number, it's all nerdy and he can nerd you out on that later. Um, less than 10% of us at Flourishing Grace are giving 10%, an actual tithe. And so when I heard that, I thought, oh my goodness, we need to stop, we need to talk, because if, if our resources is a window into our loves and a window into our soul and, and declares what we love the most, and what is it declaring about us? We need to stop and talk about this. We need to actually engage in this conversation, not for more money, but for more worship. Are we truly a people who are worshiping Jesus more than we're worshiping anything else in our life? And the answer is very clear. Not most of us. Not most of us. And so that's what we're talking about over the next couple of weeks is what does it look like to be generous worshipers, to truly worship God with everything in our life. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the generosity of Israel. What did it look like in the Old Testament to be a generous Worshiper. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament ideas of tithes and offerings and this Old Testament idea of first fruits. Um, and I know these two things are different things, they're different commands. We're going to kind of bring them together this morning for the sake of our time. And, and we're going to talk about them as a kind of one thing, this, this kind of principle of first and best, our first fruits and our best, our best tithes and offerings. And we see this throughout all of the Old Testament. And many of you guys probably have Heard about this idea of 10%. Where does that come from? Why do we give 10%? And that's this Old Testament idea of a tithe, right? Tithe is a tenth, 10%. Um, and I remember when, when I was a kid, my, my dad would always, uh, kind of the only real financial advice my dad ever gave me, and I'm not, I mean, I'm talking anything, was this. Hey, when you get your paycheck, kid, you put 10% aside. That's going to church on Sunday. You're going to put it in the plate. All right, that's just what it is. You take 20%, you put that in your savings account, because you ain't living in my house forever, all right? You're going to need some money, and I ain't supporting you. And the rest, I don't care what you do with it. Like, that was, like, the only advice that he ever gave me. I'm going to be honest with you. It kind of works. Like, it really does work. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, and so often when I, I kind of tell people that, and uh, even I know a lot of you guys just went through Financial Peace University, just wrapped up uh, last Sunday. Um, 
a lot of people who haven't really worked through that are like, man, I can't do that. I can't set aside 10% and giving. I can't set aside 20% for savings. Like, it's crazy. But we lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. The truth is, the truth is you absolutely can. You're just choosing to live above your means. You really are. Listen, man, when Desiree and I first got married, I was making $14,000 a year, and we were paying $1,000 a month in rent in Chicago. You do the math. You do the math. And we were still putting, we are giving 10% to the church, 20% in savings, and we were eating ramen every night. Like, if we ate, okay? Like, it was like, I, did, I didn't eat breakfast because we didn't have money for breakfast. Like we just, that's, just, that's just the life that we lived in that season of our life. That's just the reality of it. Um, and so, man, when we come to this idea of tithes and opportunities, I, I, I want us to kind of set aside everything that we kind of hold in our minds. Is, I just think we lie to ourselves all the time, all the time. And so t- this morning, what I'm going to ask you to do is really just come to the table with kind of an open mind and an open heart and say, man, what does the Word of God really say and what's really going on in my heart? Because this is not about money. It's about worship. It's about loves. What do you love more than you love anything in the world? So before we go any farther, let me do this. Let me just pray for us as we get into this this morning. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. And we know that, man, our flesh is weak and it's wicked. And it's constantly, constantly grasping for things that we think and believe are going to satisfy us. And it never will. And so I just pray this morning, I, I pray that we would come before you and come before your word with just an open mind and open heart, ready to receive whatever you have for us. And that's my prayer. I pray that whatever is of me, whatever I have to say and to offer, would just fall on deaf ears, would go in one ear and out the other. But whatever is of you, whatever is of your word, whatever is true and right and good, that it would convict us and stir us and move us um, to be generous, true, genuine worshipers. Would you form this community into a community of people who truly love you more than they love anything in this world? That is our ask this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. Well, we see this idea of a tithe kind of all over the place in the Old Testament again and again and again and again. It's commanded of the people of God. Uh, Exodus 13, 1 through 2. I'm just going to kind of set up the whole idea of tithes and offerings. Where, where does this all come from? Why is it there? And then we'll talk about um, our text in Malachi. It's going to give us a little, it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there. But Exodus 13, uh, very first verse, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me, set aside for me all the firstborn, whatever is first, to open the womb among people of Israel, both men and beast is mine. It's mine. Whatever the first is, is mine. Why? Why does God demand to have the first thing in your life? Why does he say, man, whatever, whatever the first thing is that you receive, man, that's going to belong to me. Why is that? Friends, he is to be first in your life. Rightly, God is to be first in your life. And if you are not going to give him your first and your best, then listen, he is not your first and best. He's not your first and best. He demands to be first. 
we are called to remember who he is. He is first, who is the greatest, who owns all things, who's worthy of all things. It is mine, God says. It's mine. Exodus 23, 19 reads this way. It says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of your God. God is worthy of the first and best of all we have, and it goes to him. It's brought into the house of your God, right? This is not, I mean, I'm going to give uh, my first fruits to some good things, some good organizations, people are doing great things in the world, some NGO. No, no, him. It's an act of worship. It's not about giving. It's about worship. And this is what I'm trying, I really want you to hear this morning and understand this morning. It's about bringing it to him and laying it before him. It's for him. It's for him. And you got to understand, if you're going to understand the Old Testament, you got to understand an agrarian culture and an agrarian society, right? These are all, these are all farmers or shepherds. There's not money. They're trading and they're bartering with their fruits, with their vegetables, with their goats, with their cows, with their sheep. That's what they're trading with. And so when, when he says first fruits or the firstborn, that's what it is. It's, it's, the, it's the first and best of what they have. God is worthy of our first and best as an act of worship to him. And there are serious consequences and serious results that come from when we bring our first and best or when we choose not to bring our first and best as an act of worship to him. And you all probably know the story. You've heard the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel was a story that confused me when I was a kid. I don't, I don't understand. Like these two brothers, they both bring an offering to the Lord. And God says, nope, I don't like that one. But this one I'll, I'll receive. He, here's how the story goes. We see it in Genesis 4. It reads this way. Genesis 4 verse 3. In the course of time, that's an important line. If you're going to understand it, you got to hear that piece. You can't skip over that. In the course of time. Is it the first thing that happened? No. Just somewhere in the course of time. Cain brought to the Lord an offering. The first offering, the best offering, no, just an offering. So somewhere, at some point in time, Cain brings an offering of fruits of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The very first and the very best part. That's the difference between the two. One is a farmer, one is a, is a herdsman, and one brings just a random offering at some point in time. The other one says the firstborn and the very best portion of the firstborn. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, the man and the offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He does not receive Cain or his offering, but he receives Abel and his offering. He says to Cain, no, I reject you and I reject the offering. He says to Abel, I receive you and I receive the offering. God accepts the first and best, but he rejects the rest. God accepts the first and best, but he rejects the point. The best, the rest, sorry, he rejects the rest. This is the point. God is worthy of the first and best, and he's only worthy of the first and best. And that's all he will accept. In fact, it's all he can accept. God cannot accept less. 
He's holy and blameless and pure and spotless in every way. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the creator of all things. He is only worthy of your first and best. And so when we bring less to him, he says, thanks but no thanks. Thanks but no thanks. And you have to understand this in order to understand our text in Malachi. Because in Malachi, chapter 3, it's talking about tithes and offerings, but we learn in chapter 1 that they're actually bringing their tithes. They're actually bringing their offerings. But it says they're bringing lame and blind animals. Like they're bringing like blind goats, and they're like, here you go, that's my offering. They're bringing like a a lame cow, it's coming like limping into the temple. It's like, well, a lion was going to get him anyway, so here you go, like there's, there's my offering. And God's like, no, I reject You and I reject that offering. It's no good before me. Because God doesn't want goats. He doesn't give a rip about goats. God doesn't want cows. He doesn't give a rip about cows. And God doesn't give a rip about your money. You think God needs your money? What he wants is your worship. He wants your heart. And that's what I want you to see. It's the first thing that we're going to talk about is this. First and best is all about generous worship. That's the point of it all. It is not about money. It's not about goats. It's not about cows. It's not about fruit. It's not about crops. It's about worship. And we must understand this. Deuteronomy 26, 10 reads this way. Behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord. It's all about worship. You shall rejoice in all that the good that the Lord your God has given you, given to you and to your house. It's about thankfulness. It's about rejoicing in praise. You and the Levite and the sojourner among you. You and the priest and the foreigner that lives among you. It's not, it's not, just, it's not just for uh, the Jew, it's for the Gentile as well. I mean, everybody comes and they praise God because he is the one who's sending the rain on the crops. He is the one who's making the sun shine. And if it wasn't for him, none of it would grow. Not one of those goats or cows would be healthy, right? This is the agrarian society saying, man, we know that God is the one who's providing all things. And so in an act of praise and worship, we worship him with our first and our best. It's a place of rejoicing and praise, demonstrable acts of praise for what he has done. God, you are worthy of my very first and my very best. But what if the crop's not good? Like what if it doesn't rain? What if the sun doesn't shine? What if I don't get the bonus this year? What, what if things aren't going well for me financially? Numbers 13, 20. And whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. God says, bring what you have. Bring what you have. And praise him because regardless of your circumstances, he is worthy of all praise. He's not comparing your fruits to someone else's fruits. He is just saying, man, worship me with what you have. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're making $14,000 a year and you're paying $1,000 a month in rent and you're bringing like a measly chump change, right, before him, right? That is your first and it's your best. 
And praise God, that's not where I am today. Like, thank goodness. Like, we would be starving if that's where I am today. But listen, it's still first and best. It doesn't matter what season of life you are in. He says, man, just, just bring what you have. What is your first and your best? He is worthy of it all, right? Or your circumstances might change, but his worth will never change. He does not change. He will always be the most worthy, the most valuable thing in your life. He will always be worthy of your first and your best. And so what I want you to see is this. God has set up from the, from the dawn of time, Cain and Abel, right? One of the earliest stories in all of the Bible. He has set up this system for his people to rejoice and be dependent on him. God longs to have a people who are dependent on him. Not, not because, I mean, he's trying to keep you under his thumb, but because he longs to lavish. He longs to provide. He longs to, to be the one who provides for you. He says, man, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to put on. It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. A system of dependency. He wants to be your God. He wants to be the supreme one who can lavish upon you all things. He wants a people who are dependent on him and who worship him rightly, who trust him with all things. However, in our culture today, dependency has become a dirty word. Right, this is the problem, okay? We no longer live in a, an agrarian society. No one in this room is dependent on your garden. You might have a garden, but your life doesn't depend on that garden, Okay? Like, this is not where we are. We're so far removed. In fact, we are more removed from an agrarian culture than any culture that's ever lived on the, on the face of the planet, right? Most of us don't even know where our food comes from. Like, you've never even been to a farm. Like, it's like, that's where we live now. It's just we live, we're so far removed from it. Like, farming has become a hobby for people. It was not a hobby for anybody in first century Israel. It was life and death. It was complete dependency. But we hate dependency. No one wants to be dependent. This is America. Like, we, we declare our independence. It's who we are. No one can be dependent here. When we, we want to fight. We want to war against dependency. Dependency is a dirty word. It's a synonym for weak, helpless, clingy, incapable, immature, and inferior. Literally, if you look it up in the thesaurus, those are the words you find. Weak and incapable, immature and inferior. Dependency is seen as an unhealthy thing. And we're told that if we work hard enough, we can escape the pit of dependency and reach the glory land of independence. Financial independence, baby. That's what we're working for. That's where we want to be. I want to be independent. I don't want anybody to be able to control me or put their finger on me. No, independence. Right? That's what we want to be. But if true, generous worship is about bringing our first and best. Most of us in our independent society, in our independent culture, have robbed God of that worship. We've robbed him of that worship. That's the second thing I want you to see this morning. Anything less than first and best is robbery. This is what's being declared in Malachi chapter 3. This is the point of the passage, the point of the text. It reads this way. Benjamin read it for us earlier, but I'll read just the first part of it for us again. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Like God said, man, if I was like you and I got angry like you get angry, I would have consumed you, right? But I don't change. 
Praise the Lord. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. How have we robbed you? They ask. How, what, what do you mean we've robbed you? We, we haven't robbed you. We wouldn't rob God. Right? Everything, every person in this room would say, man, I would never rob God. Like the audacity to think that I would ever rob God. Like I would ever put my hand in his piggy bank. That's not happening. No way would I ever rob God. And yet he says the same thing that the people of Israel says, but you have. How have we robbed you? In your tithes, in your contributions. We've robbed God. We've robbed God of worship. And the evidence, the evidence is our bank account. I said at the beginning, man, you want to know what you love more than you love anything in the world, follow the evidence. Look at where your money goes and you will know what you love more than you love anything in the world. And what we're robbing him of is not money. We're robbing him of love and worship and adoration. And the evidence, it can be found in our money. You've heard it, me say this so many times before at, at Flourishing Grace, but man, the world and the flesh and the devil are the things that we're constantly, constantly battling. And the goal of the world and the flesh and the devil is to get you to worship anything other than Jesus. Man, that's the, that's the devil's goal is to get you to worship anything other than Jesus. And he's good at it. He's so good at it. Um, after World War II in America, um, America found itself in this unbelievable um, kind of strategic place. What, what happened after World War II, you've got to kind of understand uh, a little bit of our history. All right, World War II, I mean, all of Europe is decimated. Right? I mean completely leveled. They have to rebuild all of their infrastructure. As an, entire, as an entire society, they have to rebuild their infrastructure. And you look at Japan. Yes, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but even other cities in Japan have to rebuild their infrastructure completely. But America, America has nothing to rebuild. We have ramped up this wartime production to the highest rate of any system in the history of the world, and we have nothing to rebuild. And so we've, we've pulled all the, the women out of their homes and we've put them into factories. We have all these men who are coming back from war to, to put back to work. And we have this unbelievable strategic advantage. And economists are saying, hey, th this is a moment, an opportunity for us to not just be a military superpower, but to become a global economic superpower. The question is how? How do we keep the production going? And so the government brings in all of these uh, economic strategists and they sit down at the table and they begin to strategize, how are we going to do this? What is this going to look like? Enter a man named Victor Labau. Victor Labau said this. He was an economic strategist during this time and he came up with a system that was going to help us uh, be a, an economy of hyper-production. Here's what he said. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals. That we seek our spiritual satisfaction and our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed 
burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. That's the strategy. Victor Labelle came up with two ideas, two, two ways that we're going to do this. The first was known as planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence um, is a strategy where you, know, you, you create a product that wears out, but it wears out in such a way that the consumer doesn't get angry about it, right? It breaks, but it's okay. I got my money out of it, right? This is, this is when we know that there's everything in our world right now could last way longer than it lasts. Cars could go 500,000 miles if they really wanted them to go 500,000 miles. The tires on your cars could, could last five, ten times as long as they last. But, man, we just change our tires out every 50 to whatever, 75,000 miles, because that's just what you do, right? It's the Ikea dresser that breaks after two years, and you're like, who cares? It was just Ikea. That's the whole point of it, right? Like, I got it at Ikea because I knew it was going to break. It's not a big deal. I just need it for a couple years. Like, and we're, we're satisfied in that. It's not a big deal. It's planned obsolescence. We're not really angry about it. It's just what it is. The next is perceived obsolescence. Perceived obsolescence is this idea that man, you are shamed or you don't, you don't feel comfortable. The thing, the product is just fine. It works just fine, but you want the new one. You want the shiny, glittery one. This is why every uh, kid at Bountiful High School has to have the latest iPhone. Otherwise, their friends are all going to make fun of them. And all the parents in the room are like, I know, isn't that bogus? That's so ridiculous. But no parent in the room is rocking an iPhone 7. Even though it would work just fine. It's perceived obsolescence. It works just fine, but I want the new one. My car would still be running, but oh, that new car, that new car smell, man. My clothes, they, they were just fine. But this year's style is different. Got to get them new shoes. It's perceived obsolescence. Victor Labau came up with both of these things in order to create a culture of consumption. A culture of consumption. I'm going to read that quote again. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption a way of life. This must become a way of life for you. That we convert our buying and the use of goods into rituals. That we seek our spiritual satisfaction action spiritually your soul must become the thing that is attached to what you buy and our ego satisfaction in consumption victor labau is saying we must make consumption an act of worship this must become the place where you praise the god of fill in the blank I said at the beginning of this i said man here's the problem at flourishing grace less than 10 percent of us are giving 10 percent, but that's not true that's not true. We're all tithing. Every person in this room is tithing. Every person in this room is giving 10%. You're giving your first and your best to some deity. The question is, what deity is it? Is it the deity of comfort? The deity of security? The deity of kids and youth activities? The deity of Man, your status and how you look, the deity of your image, the deity of your hobby, you're giving your first and best to something. You are worshiping at the altar of something. The question is, what is it? What is receiving your first and your best? Every single one of us in this room, every single person on this planet is giving their first and best to something. What is it? And God rightly says, hey, that's mine that belongs to me and only me. You should rightly be offered 
into me as an act of praise. You are robbing me of praise and worship, and it rightly belongs to me and only me. And so what's actually happening in this human soul is we're trying to find satisfaction with money in places that only Jesus can satisfy. And listen, it's all by design. It's all designed. And it works for a moment. And then we're unsatisfied. And so we go on to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. All the while, the one that, satis- that can truly satisfy us is right there. We're all generous worshipers. The question is, what are you worshiping generously? And as I've said last week, and I'll say again this week, and I'll probably say it again next week, man, the answer's right there. If you're willing to look, if you're willing to actually follow your money and study your bank account and say, man, where am I spending my money? What do I love? Do I love my car the most? Do I love my hobbies the most? Man, what do I love most? It's right there. The evidence is right there. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What do you love more than you love anything in the world? All of your loves are right there. Are they rightly aligned? Are they rightly aligned? What do we do? What do we do? Real quick, two two kind of points of application. Uh, First is this. We return to the Lord bringing our first and best. We return to the Lord bringing our first and best. Malachi uh, chapter 3 says this. He says, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how will we return? How shall we return? Skipping down to verse 10, he says this. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not devour the fruits of your soil, soil and your wine and, er, so your, your vine in the field shall, uh, shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You bring, we return to the Lord, bringing our first and best. We have sinned against God in our worship of stuff. Return to him by bringing our stuff. As we bring once again him rightly, we rightly declare his worth and value and praise of his glorious name through generous worship. Through generous worship. The people of Malachi are bringing offerings to the Lord. But it's the blind goat, the lame sheep. They're bringing it to the Lord. And God says, no, 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 no. I want you to rightly worship me once again. I want you to love me more than you love anything else in this world. What is your demonstrable act of right praise? You can't understand worship, or you can't understand generous worship until you understand this that we must bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in his house. Um, it's like this let's say I, I, I have to hire somebody to do some work at my house, a plumber. Because my wife will tell you I'm not a plumber. All right? I don't touch that. Okay? Um, I, I can fix a lot of things. I'm pretty handy. But when it comes to plumbing, I'm just not going to engage in that mess. All right? And so we hire a plumber at our house. And he comes and he says, all right. He assesses the situation. And he says, all right, here's what it's going to cost. Here's, here's the parts. Um, and here is the labor. Here's what I'm going to be bringing home from this. Okay? And, and the parts are going to cost X. And the, the labor is going to cost X. And the labor is $1,000. 
He's going to pocket $1,000 from his work on my exploding toilets, okay? Um, and so, what is 10% of $1,000? Okay, we're there. We're sharp. $100. And so I put a 10 $100 bills in his hand. There's his $1,000. Here's the question. Which one of those $100 bills is his first and best? Which one is the tithe? Which one? The first one? First one in his hand? The first one he spins. The first one he spins. This, this is really simple. It's, it's just a, such a simple concept. I receive my payment. I receive what is mine. And the very first thing I do, I say, this belongs to you. This belongs to you. But what we do is this. Well, here's rent. That's the first thing, because we got to take care of rent. And, and here's utilities, because I have to do that. And here's medical, because i got to take care of that. And here's food, because i got to take care of that. And here's a little bit of inter- entertainment. And here's uh, the five bucks that's left over. Or, realistically, the zero dollars that's left over. And God looks at And I, you, you got to hear that. God looks at that, that, and he says, thanks, but no thanks. Because we're trying to pay him. And God doesn't want to be paid. He wants to be worshipped. That is the difference. God does not care about your money. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want to be paid. He wants to be worshipped. And it's only worship when it's first and best. It is not worship when it's leftovers. When it's lame goats and crippled bulls. It is not worship. He doesn't want to be paid. He wants to be worshipped. The last thing I want you to see is this. We're out of time. Those who bring the first and best receive a response from God. Now, listen, health and wealth preachers, they love Malachi chapter 3. They love it, man. I'm telling you, they, oh, test me and see. The, will I not open the windows of heaven for you? Like, oh, man, we could get up here, we could shout, and we could make up some quippy phrases, and we could be all health and wealth about it. Listen, we are the farthest thing from that at Flourishing Grace. But I'm going to tell you something. It's true that those who bring their first and best receive a response from God. That's a genuine biblical right idea. And I'm not telling you that he's going to make you rich if you just give everything. That's, that's not true. That's, that's, that's false. It's not real. It's not, that's not what's going on here. But there is a response from God when people bring their first and best. When they love him more than they love anything in the world, God says, man, let me show you what I will do for you. If you will depend on me, let me show you how I provide. If you will love me, let me show you how I love you. This is all over the Bible. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. It's in the New Testament too. Romans 8, Romans 8, 28. And, those, and we know that for those who love God, those who, who say, man, you are worthy of my first and best. I love you rightly. All things work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who love God. James 1.12, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Not everybody. Not everybody, 
those who love him receive the response. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Now, therefore, that know therefore that the Lord your God is God and faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps commandments for a thousand generations. For a thousand generations. And those who love him, he lavishes upon him. This is not health and wealth. It's a promise to a thousand generations that those who draw near to God, God responds by drawing near to them. So many people want to uh, quote uh, Jesus in, in uh, John chapter uh, 16. John 16, uh, Jesus says, uh, Man, in this world you have trouble. Right? It's, listen, Jesus promises trouble. He's not promising you health and wealth. He's promising trouble. But that's not the full verse. Jesus says, but take heart. I have what? What? I've overcome the world. He's like, listen, you're going to have trouble, but man, just cling to me. I've overcome the world. This is the gospel. Jesus is God's first and best. It is his tithe to you. Don't worry about it. You have a God who is going to give his first and best to you. His first, his only son, his best, the pure and holy, spotless one, he lavishes upon you. Not because you paid him. Not because you bought him. While you were still sinners, Christ says, men, let me come and let me give you the very first and the very best of all that I have. My very life is yours. God did not spare his only son. He gave him up for you. Don't worry, this, yes, in this world you're going to have troubles, but man, just cling to me, depend on me, worship me. I have overcome the world. You're not going to overcome the world. You're enslaved to the world. Cling to me. I'm the only one that can actually overcome it. He's the only one that can overcome it. I mean, I'm the consumer. I keep going back and I keep worshiping the things with, with my wealth and my money, but if I just cling to Jesus, he's overcome all of that. All I have to do is cling to him, there will be a response from God to those who cling to him. Think about Job. Job who suffered just endlessly the full weight of Satan. Satan, of all the people, Satan says, that one, let me just put everything on him. But at the end, who's blessed more than anyone else? Is it Job or is it his family and friends? Job receives the blessing of the Lord. He faithfully endures and suffers through it all. He says, man, I'm going to keep worshiping you more than I worship anything in the world. I'm going to keep loving you more than I love anything in the world. And in the end, he's the one that's blessed. God does not want your money. You can't buy him. You can't buy him. He wants your worship because he's worthy of it. We give not as a payment. We give because he's worthy of it. We lay it before him. We say, you are the first. You are the best. That's my cry to you this morning. Man, I, I, I don't want your money. I, I don't want your money. I, as your pastor, want you to worship Jesus more than you worship anything in the world. Friends, I, I'm, I would starve. I would go hungry if everybody at Flourishing Grace would worship Jesus more than they worship anything in the world. I would wear rags for the rest of my days and be mocked and ridiculed in every place I go if it means that everybody flourishing grace would worship Jesus more than they worship anything in the world. I would be exposed to the elements. I would sleep outside if it meant that everybody at flourishing grace would worship Jesus more than they worship anything. I don't care about money. God doesn't want your money. It's all about generous worship.
And every single one of us are worshiping something, man. What are you worshiping?